everyone, it's Rich Warner from WealthMaxBuilder.com. This is another lesson from the Basics of Investing series. Today we're going to talk about the four major asset classes that we can invest in as long-term investors. Let's dive right in. There are basically four major asset classes to invest in. Stocks, bonds, commodities, and real estate. Now I've also included collectibles here as another category. And while some of us may be collectors in some way, shape, or form, it's really not that widespread. You really have to be an expert to know what you're doing in terms of collecting coins and stamps and art. And then we have also fine cars and uh, memorabilia. This would be like sports memorabilia or collecting things from favorite artists and music. While collectibles is indeed another form of investing, I really don't include it among the, the four major classes because, as I mentioned, it's more of an esoteric thing reserved for experts. But for most of us, we have access to the stock market and to the bond market these days through mutual funds and ETFs, exchange-traded funds particularly, as well as trading individual stocks and bonds. As you may gather from some of my other videos, I highly suggest that the average investor stay away from picking individual stocks and bonds but to stick with funds instead for many reasons. You should check out those videos if you have the chance because there I really explain in detail why that's the case. Now commodities are securities that are based on actual physicals like energy, oil, natural gas, precious metals like gold and silver and platinum as well as industrial metals like zinc, aluminum, tin, copper, then we also have the agriculturals, which includes wheat and uh, coffee and orange juice and soybeans, uh, not to mention uh, orange juice and the like. But as we'll see, commodities happen to be a pretty scary investment category. And like collectibles, I don't believe that most investors should consider commodities as a significant part of their overall investment strategy. And I'll show you why. The last major asset class is real estate, and that's a pretty widespread investment area when you think about it. Most Americans try to, you know, that's one of their goals is to, is to purchase a home and invest in real estate over time. And that indeed should be a significant consideration for most of us as long-term investors. But we'll be focusing mostly on securities investing. Um, this would be non-physical in a sense. It's primarily stock funds and bond funds. And that's what we're going to use to maximize reward to risk and to generate significant real returns over time. You know, to be a good investor, you really have to get a feel for what you're investing in. You know, how have these four investment classes behaved over long periods of time? And the farther back you can go, the better, because then you're going to be taking into consideration not just rosy periods in economic history, but also the bad periods, the, the heavy recessions, and even the, the depression uh, during the 30s in this country, late 20s and early 30s. We need to take into consideration the big picture. You know, how have these asset classes withstood the test of time over long periods of uh, economic change? So if we have a look at this, what I call the king of the mountain chart, this happens to be a chart which compares the long-term historical performances of um, stocks, 
particularly the S&P 500, since 1925. That's the green line. The yellow line happens to be uh, investing in real estate or uh, single-family homes uh, with leverage in this case. This is four times leverage or 25% down when you buy a home. The purple line happens to be the optimal mix portfolio, which we'll talk about later. The blue line is the investment-grade bond index in this country. So this is, as you notice, a lot steadier than the stock market or leveraged real estate, but it also comes at a price. It doesn't generate as real or as high returns as the stock market. The brown line happens to be the yellow line without the mortgage effect, without the leverage. So if you were to buy a home with 100% cash, the brown line is what you'd get over time. And as we can see, it's noticeably lower than even investment-grade bonds, which is startling when you think about it. One would think that homes without, you know, 100% investment in homes would give you a higher return than bonds, and that's absolutely not true. The only way you can magnify the returns of investing in a home or real estate is through mortgages, um, which gives you more comparable results to the stock market with mortgage uh, than without. And finally, we have the red line, which is the CRB Commodities Research Bureau Index. Since 1925, as we can see, this investment has been absolutely horrible over the long haul. We've generated negative real returns with commodities. So why would one ever want to be a commodities investor? I do not see a reason why this should be the case for anyone, and I highly recommend that all investors avoid commodity investing. I'd like to add that this graph is a cumulative return chart of all of these major asset classes in real terms, which is after the effect of inflation. In the United States, the average annual rate of inflation is about 3% per year. What that means is that every year your dollar loses about three pennies in buying power, on average. Now there are periods of higher inflation in, in the history of the United States and lower inflation as well. In fact, negative inflation in the periods of the Great Depression and heavy recessions in this country. But over the long haul, the average rate of inflation in this country is 3%. So if we subtracted 3% from the annual performances of all of these major asset classes over time, that's what builds this chart. So this is a real return, cumulative return chart for all of the major asset classes. Another way to measure, engage, and compare the performances of these major asset classes is to ask ourselves, you know, how much have these asset classes return on an annual basis in real terms after inflation, but then let's also factor in volatility or the risk level of each asset class. And volatility, visually speaking, is the jaggedness of these lines, of the cumulative equity curve for each respective asset class. The more volatile or jagged, up and down swings the line is, the higher the risk or the higher the volatility of the investment class. If we compare, for example, leveraged real estate here, this happens to be the most jagged line by far, the yellow line, and compare that with the blue line, which is the calmest one of them all, you get to see what I mean by what volatility is. Obviously, the impact of mortgage leverage on a real estate purchase magnifies the returns of your investment in a home, whereas with this blue line, we're investing in investment grade, which is very low risk, um, you know, A-rated 
uh, government securities in general, and the returns over time, you know, generate steady interest, and there's very little price fluctuation along the way compared to the stock market, for example. So we have to factor in the overall return, which is the positive steepness of the curve, divided by the amount of jaggedness or volatility of the curves. Real return after inflation divided by the volatility or jaggedness or the risk level of that particular asset class. And when we do that, we arrive at a table like this. Since 1925, the average annual return in real terms for, for investment-grade bonds has been almost 3%. The average annual return for the stock market is about three times that, about 9% a year. If we take a look at real estate investing, you're only getting about 1% real return without the impact of, of mortgage or leverage. And with leverage 25% down, you're magnifying that return by quite a bit. So, you know, your returns are more like 7, 7.5% per year. If we take a look at the CRB index, that red line that we saw in the previous chart, we actually have negative real returns. That's why commodities are such a terrible investment for investors. The risk level is measured by the jaggedness of the line, as we said, or the volatility. Uh, we use standard deviation to gauge that historically. There are many different ways to gauge risk, and standard deviation is one of the most popular, most widely used measures. And so these numbers in red represent the jaggedness or the volatility of those equity curves that we saw on the previous slide. And as we can see, the risk level uh, for the aggregate bond index, investment grade bond index, is about 6% and about three to four times as much for the stock market. The CRB is also quite volatile at 16.5% volatility, and mortgage real estate, as we mentioned, is the most jagged of them all, the, the riskiest of them all. That's 35% standard deviation. Now, a real estate investor will come around and say to you, well, you know, we're in this for the long haul. We're not going to be flipping our real estate investment uh, from year to year or within a couple of years. So we're essentially holding this for the long haul. So, you know, volatility really shouldn't factor in at all. But I, I would disagree because you have to take a look at how the prices do fluctuate over time. Real estate prices go up and down, just like the stock market in a sense, based on the way the economy is doing. So we can measure the returns and the volatility of these asset classes in both real terms as well as in terms of the standard deviation or volatility. So what we want to do as investors is divide the average annual percentage return in real terms for these investments, these asset classes, by their risk levels. So the green row divided by the red row gives us the real reward to risk ratio. And when we do that, we actually get to quantify the reward to risk levels of each asset class. What you'll notice is that, you know, CRB is generating negative reward to risk returns. And the highest one here is the mix between stocks and bonds. There's a certain weighting between a mix of investment grade bonds and stocks that will optimize the reward to risk ratio based on historical performance. It happens to be somewhere around 30% uh, stocks and the rest investment grade bonds for most investors, but that varies based on time horizon and things like that, which we'll talk about in later lessons. 
But it's interesting to note that an optimal mix of stock and bond funds actually beats the stock market itself in a, on a reward-to-risk basis. So that's really important for long-term investors. And if we go back to the graph, we'll notice that the line is the purple line here, which represents the optimal mix between stock and bond funds. And notice that this line, what the reward-to-risk ratio of 0.55 is suggesting, is that this line gives us the most positive slope of all of these curves with the least amount of jaggedness. That's what optimal reward-to-risk ratio means. So once again, we're getting a nice positive slope with not all that much jaggedness. What more can you ask for as a long-term investor? I mean, do you want to plunk 100% of your capital in the stock market and go through times as in the Great Depression when you had an 85% pullback in four years? I always tell my students that if you had the misfortune of purchasing uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Index in 1928 and you plunked down $100,000, by 1932, that investment was worth only $15,000. Now, I don't know about you, but most investors, I don't think, would be able to take an $85,000 or 85% drop in equity and come back and still remain equity investors after an experience like that. Most people, you know, they get bitten once, twice shy. They will never go back to the stock market because, you know, once having gotten burned. And that's wrong, too. It's wrong not to invest in stocks. The point is that you have to get the right proper mix. And as I'm suggesting, the proper mix is not weighted heavily to stocks at all. That's actually incorrect if you want to optimize reward to risk. And that's where most investment advisors and the bulk of the investment community is steering the average investor wrongly, in my opinion. You know, if you read most of the articles out there, you know, when the stock market is rallying, Everybody should be in stocks, and you should be heavily weighted to stocks. But not if you want to optimize reward to risk. If you want to optimize your reward to risk ratio, you should not be more in stocks than in bonds. In fact, the reverse is true. And we'll go over exactly how much in later videos. I'd just like to mention in passing that there's one more way that we can gauge the performances, and it's a very good one, in addition to the reward to risk ratio which once again we said was the average annual return in real terms divided by the standard deviation that gave us real reward to risk. But another way to do this is to calculate what is known as the profit factor. And all the profit factor is, is if you add up all the up years, put that in the numerator, and then the denominator, you're dividing the numerator by the denominator, and in the denominator you've got the sum of all the bad years, all the down years. So summation of all the good years, all the up years, divided by the summation of all the bad years, all the down years, that gives you a profit factor. In this case, we're dividing all the up years in real terms after the effect of inflation, divided by the down years in real terms after the effect of inflation. So if we took, like say for instance, the stock market, every year that it went up, that would add to the numerator part. But every year it went down, we would add that to the denominator part. Don't forget that this is a real return chart, so we're dealing with returns after inflation. If we do that, if you notice, this very good measure of returns tells us that the optimal mix, once again, is preferable to the stock market and to the bond market alone. This one happens to give us the highest profit factor. 
this optimal mix of stock funds and bond funds, which I, as I mentioned, is more heavily weighted to investment grade bond funds. Here I've got some um, interesting factoids I like to just summarize here. You know, investment grade bond funds have historically generated six, six and a half percent a year. And if you subtract the rate of inflation in the United States, that gives you about three to three and a half percent real returns. The stock market, on the other hand, has uh, giving us closer to 12% nominal return and after inflation that's 9% after you subtract 3% annual inflation. So stock funds generate three times as much return as bonds in real terms but historically as we've seen the um, effect of volatility is actually four times as great. So with stocks you're getting three times the return but four times the risk level as compared to investment grade bonds. So if you factor in once again the volatility or the risk you know, you have to scale down your allocation of stocks. And as we've mentioned, in summary, um, we all know that commodities are terrible investments over the long haul. So you should stay away from them. Here's a chart that compares the max, min, and average annual returns for the four major asset classes and also includes the optimal mix of stocks and bond funds. The average annual returns um, are the black lines here. Okay, so like say for example, um, we said that you know uh, stocks give you somewhere around 12% per year. Bonds are giving us about six, six and a half percent per year. Uh, the optimal mix is somewhere in between. Um, real estate is way down there, and unleveraged home buying is over here as well. So under under three percent a year. The green part of the bars show us the highest ever annual returns for that investment class. Following the Great Depression years, we had a huge rebound year in the stock market of close to 50%. So that's represented by this high green bar. CRB also had an incredible rebound year. But notice that the red part of the bar here shows you the worst annual return ever generated by that asset class. And as we can see, the stock market has dipped significantly here. Now this is on an annual basis. It does not include the worst drawdown during the year. So like if we take 2008 and 2009, the actual drawdown in the stock market exceeded 50% inside of a one-year period, but you ended up with a negative 38% uh, year in 2008, for example. These red bars do not uh, show the worst uh, case scenario inside of the year, the worst drawdown. It shows the end of the year result. Uh, so there could be even more pain that's not shown here on these charts. But I'd like to highlight the fact that look at the downside here for the investment grade bond market and compare that to the stock market. I mean, it's significantly less, is it not? And that's why we're more heavily weighted to investment grade bonds. And that's what gives you that steady purple cumulative equity curve that we talked about um, earlier. So once again, the point of this slide is to get to know what you're investing in. Get familiar with the nature of the beast, so to speak, in each asset class. And I'd like to mention that, you know, this information is not static. I mean, every year I'm updating the databases as well as other investment analysts. You know, we're constantly appending information as we go through time. We're adding information onto the historical database. The point is that these... Um, these averages and these worst-case and best-case scenarios are going to change over time. What this chart is essentially is a reward-to-risk scatter plot, and it shows on the y-axis here 
the one that goes vertically, uh, it shows the average annual returns of various asset classes. And the x-axis shows the degree or the amount of risk assumed. So we assume risk in order to get returns. If you take a look at how I've split this scatter plot into four quadrants, the A quadrant here is different from the B quadrant to the right of it. And lower left, we have the C quadrant and the D quadrant is on the lower right. Now the D quadrant is the worst quadrant and this is because we're assuming the most risk and getting the lowest returns for that risk. That's a bum deal. If you're assuming more risk and you're not getting paid for taking that risk, why should you take that risk? Contrast that with the best quadrant, quadrant A in the northwestern or upper left corner of this scatter plot. In this case, we're getting nice high returns for not that much risk and that's the best scenario possible. So if we were to plot the average annual returns as well as the risk levels here from this table onto a plot like this, we could put bonds in this quadrant right here which is not a bad quadrant to be in. We could put stocks in this quadrant which isn't necessarily the worst quadrant to be in either, but notice the amount of risk we had to assume to get those high returns. Home prices are around here. Commodities, as we said, is a terrible investment, so that's in the lower right quadrant, the worst quadrant. But interestingly, the optimal mix of bond funds and stock funds puts us right about there. This is actually preferable to being 100% in bonds and 100% in stocks because you're closer to the northwestern corner. This point right here uh, gives us a risk level of about uh, you know 5% per year but you're getting about 7% uh, returns per year for taking about 5% risk and that ratio of 7% divided by 5 is going to be higher than the ratio that you can get for bonds which is more like 5 divided by 4 and in the case of stocks about 12 divided by 20 you know, it's interesting to note that, you know, stocks are like, get all the attention. They get all the press. They don't even talk much about the bond markets. So, you know, stocks are sexy and they get all the attention and bonds are more like plain vanilla. But as investors, boring is beautiful because it adds stability and generates income for us. So keep that in mind. You know, there's an old saying that if you follow the herd, you step in dung. And that's really true. You know, if you follow what everybody's hot after, it tends to go pop anyways. Sometimes it's good to go against the whole crowd and um, you know know that investment grade bonds balance things in your overall mix. In a previous video I in Corporate Finance 101 I actually explain why stocks are riskier than bonds but I just like to refresh the key fundamental reasons before we move on to the next lesson and that's you know stock shares represent partial ownership in a company so you're participating in the unlimited earnings growth potential of a company but you're also participating in the bad times as well if the company doesn't do as great as expected you know stock prices do get hammered you know that's part of the deal in stark contrast a bond does not give you unlimited upside your returns are limited by the yield of the bond if you hold it to maturity you know you're getting your set interest coupon rate until maturity and then you get your principal back and whether you bought the bond at a premium or a discount to par 
determines whether the internal rate of return or the yield of the bond is going to be higher or lower than the coupon. But, you know, debt is a contractual obligation. Corporations and governments have to honor their debt obligations to repay the interest in the principal because if they don't, then they jeopardize their ability to raise capital in the debt markets in the future. It's much like a FICO score for individual households. You know, if you don't pay off your credit card debt or your mortgage or whatever, then your FICO score goes down and your interest rate goes up and your ability to borrow capital in the future is going to be hampered because the interest rate they charge is going to go up if you're viewed as a riskier debtor than, than a less riskier debtor. So the less riskier debtors get the lower interest rates. And that makes sense because, you know, why should you lend money to a risky uh, debtor? So here are two very good reasons explain why bonds are a much safer investment. So the point is that you have to get a mix between the less risky investment bonds, investment grade bonds, and the riskier investment class stocks. We need stocks in the mix, however, because we need to generate returns above and beyond the rate of inflation. And just keep in mind that, you know, companies that have stock, you know, they're in business to make money. They're not there to watch their earnings drop to zero and the stock to go to zero and them to go bankrupt. Companies are there to generate earnings above and beyond the rate of inflation. Otherwise, why be in business? And that's the whole point of being a long-term stock investor. But we shouldn't be over-allocated to such uh, investment plays. We need to balance things with the steady eddy approach and the plain vanilla approach of investment grade bonds. You know, I got this uh, table from Fidelity Investments, and this happens to be the most conservative table that I could find among the major brokerage firms. If you go to other brokerage firms, a balanced investment allocation to them is like 60% stocks, 40% bonds. Fidelity happens to have about 50-50, which is closer to, to what I view to be balanced. As you know, I'm a big fan of being more allocated to investment-grade bond funds than stocks. And so for me, balance is more like 30, 35% stocks and the rest fixed income. It just goes to show you that there are different types of ways that you can allocate. Uh, and these allocation types can be employed uh, and changed over time as the time horizon changes. You certainly want to be more conservative as you approach retirement age. This is just another chart that shows that, you know, you should build your base of your overall investment strategy with the more secure investments and and the speculative allocations should be the smallest. But there is a problem with this type of chart and it is that if you're over allocated to like say CDs and money market funds, you're not going to generate real returns. Um, that's a problem. So I find a chart like this to be misleading. Uh, you need to get investment-grade bond funds that are going to generate real returns for you. Uh, take today, for example, the yield on a one-year CD in, this, in the United States is about 2% per year. That's less than the 2.9% CPI level of inflation that was most recently reported year on year. So you're actually getting like negative 1% real return from a CD. So what's the point of uh, investing in ultra-safe investment? You know, you may as well spend your money because you're you're not going to generate any real growth from it over time in ultra-safe investments. So I would disagree with some of these uh, so-called pyramid asset allocations charts that show 
then you should be more heavily in cash CDs, savings account. I mean, this is not a good investment strategy at all. I would say knock off this whole bottom here in this chart and start with um, you know, investment-grade bond funds, which include treasury bonds and such, some municipals and what have you. Start building from here and the growth portion on top. Um, so let's just review some key takeaways from this lesson. Point A. Before investing, we need to familiarize ourselves with the historical performances of all the four major asset classes. We need to know what the average annual returns are for these asset classes in real terms. And we also have to know how jagged the returns are, how volatile and how risky those returns are over time. When we factor both into the picture, we get a real understanding and appreciation for how much we should be invested in each respective asset class. As we saw, stocks generate the highest real returns, but also come with the high price of volatility. You get three times the returns of investment-grade bond funds by investing in stock funds, but you get four times the risk. We saw that the worst investment by far is commodities. You should not be in commodities at all, based on historical performance. Anyone who suggests that you, know, you need gold in your portfolio in case of inflation risk or geopolitical risk hasn't looked at long-term charts. I've looked at the charts of gold over long periods of time and I could tell you that over long periods of time it's just been a wash. Gold prices go up, they go down over long periods of time, up and down and they, in the end no net result. Why should that be considered investment? You're better investing your money in an investment grade bond fund. At least you're generating income over and above the rate of inflation pretty consistently over time. Point D, we also saw that leveraged real estate like stocks is a good investment over long periods of time. Leveraged real estate is essentially taking out a mortgage to buy a home. And the example that we used was 25% down, but this could be like 15, 20, whatever it is you're putting down. Um, your returns will be higher than cash, 100% cash investment in real estate, but the volatility of returns is actually enormous, comparable and even greater than the stock market. So that means that to be a real estate investor, you need an even longer time horizon than for the stock market. It does not make sense to flip real estate to go in and out and buy and sell every four or five years. That is a losing strategy based on studies that I've seen that show that the optimal holding period for real estate is about 10 years. Point E, we've shown that investment-grade bonds generate steady interest income and add stability to the performance of your overall asset allocation. There's this yin-yang effect between stocks and bonds, which I've uh, actually shown in a previous video as well. But basically, during severe recessions, when the stock market is getting hammered, investment-grade bonds actually outperform. And it's this yin-yang effect that provides the balance in the overall returns of your equity curve. These are two very good reasons why you should have investment grade bond funds in your overall asset allocation. And so point E, the best solution for investors is to arrive at an optimal mix as we saw the purple line that provides us the highest returns with the least amount of risk. This is the northwesternmost point on the efficient frontier that we saw um, in that scatter plot which showed on the y-axis the average annual returns and on the x-axis the risk levels assumed. We want to be in that northwestern most quadrant, quadrant A. And to get there we need to allocate to a mix of investment grade bond funds and stock funds and to over allocate actually to the investment grade bond side of things. 
and rebalance annually and become a passive investor. This is the way to go and I highly recommend this strategy and um, this is what we're going to elaborate in subsequent lessons. Thank you very much for watching this video. I hope to see you in the next one. Thank you.